This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out of him, immediately turned about him in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And he said, as he entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talithia kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word. Thank you. Be seated. Every time I get up to teach from here until we're done, I'll just take the next text and try and teach from it and give you a sense for what's going on there. And then my hope is that as we just walk through scripture together, that you will gain the skills necessary to take yourself and your friends and family through scripture as well in a gospel-oriented way. That is, seeing in every passage our desperate need for a savior and also seeing in every passage that Jesus is provided as that savior and that he is more than enough for what we need. And so when it came to picking our text again this week, I sat down and began to read, and I realized there's just no way to see this as two stories. This is not two stories. This is not a story of a man with a 12-year-old daughter that is sick and eventually dies, and then a separate story of a woman that has bled for 12 years who gets healed. For some reason, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the four gospel writers that capture this story, they all put the stories together just like this, letting us know that it happened just this way. And not only that, but Mark, in the way he writes his account of these stories, he is letting us know that they need to be seen together, that seeing them together will help us understand the two stories as separate units. And seeing them together will bring to light something that could not be revealed in treating them separately. 
particularly, we'll come back to verses 34, 35, and 36 and see that at the middle of this unit, at the middle of this text, there is drawn out this climactic point of Jesus talking to Jairus after he finds out that his daughter's dead. And that is where Mark draws out for us this incredible point, this incredible instruction, this incredible hope that we could not get if he separated the two stories. Think about all that is in both of these stories. The, the mention of 12 years. It's the girl's age and, it's, and the woman has suffered unspeakable pain and shame for that long. Both the woman and the 12-year-old are near to death. They're both deeply diseased. They're both hopeless and they're both ceremonially unclean outside of the community. Both desire to be made well. Do you see this in verse 23? Jairus is saying, please come and touch my daughter that she may be made well. And then in verse 34, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has made you well. Both stories tell of Jesus being ridiculed or rebuked for the way he's handling the situation. Both stories involve healing words and healing touch that we're gonna find out this morning with the sacraments yet again. That God not only speaks his healing touch to us in his word, but he touches us through the sacraments that he loves to touch. He loves to have his physical body come near to where he is spiritually drawn near in redemption and healing and hope. And not only that, both stories have a resurrection where someone comes back from the dead. One is more obvious than the other, but we will get to that in time. For those of you that like to know an outline, this is what I'm thinking this morning. Point one, desperation and delay. Point one, desperation and delay. Point two, developing faith. And then finally, we're gonna look at Jesus's two little daughters in this passage and see what we can gain from it. So first, desperation and delay. We see this in Jairus in, verse, Jairus in verses 21 through 24. Now, just so you know, we find out that his name is Jairus in verse 22, but not again are we going to find out, not again will he be called by that name. From now on, four or five times, he will be the ruler of the synagogue. And Mark is trying to tell us something when he tells us that. He is saying, this is a man of incredible clout. This is a man of incredible wealth. This is a man with all kinds of influence and authority. This is, his, this is a man with his ducks in a row. This is a man that has been achieving. This is a man that has been meriting. This is a man that has been working. This is a brilliant man. This is a man with lots of connections. The ruler of the synagogue is a layman, so he does not get paid, but he is the administrator of the synagogue. The synagogue is where the Jewish people would meet for weekly worship. Once the dispersion happened, so once the Jewish people began to flee Jerusalem because of persecution, in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Jewish people went all over the ancient Near East, including all the way to Rome. And these Jewish people needed a place to worship on a weekly basis. And so the synagogue was the idea that came about from the Jewish leaders because they could not possibly get to the temple every week. And this man would be like, and we're guessing that he's in Capernaum. It's probably a pretty large group of Jews there. This man is probably the most powerful Jew in Capernaum. And he is not used to being on his face begging. But what has driven him to his knees and what has taken him to the point of begging, the same thing that would drive you and me to that exact same spot. The text literally says, my daughter is at the door of death. 
And although we'll come back to this later, the, the rulers of the synagogue have already met at this point. They've already decided they've got to get rid of Jesus, that he is bad news for them, that they're losing authority, they're losing influence, they're losing control, they're losing money, they're losing all kinds of resources that they value. And yet this man realizes, I'm at the end of my rope. If I don't get to Jesus in these desperate circumstances, then my little daughter is going to die. And so Jesus says to his enemy, sure, I'll follow you, let's go. And they're heading to his house. And if you can imagine, it's a high speed situation where the ambulance has their lights on and the police are escorting. And this is the most popular and most famous and most powerful Jew in Capernaum. And we better get to his house quick. And it's as if Jesus notices that someone's not wearing their seatbelt and he stops the high speed, the high speed pursuit of the hospital and says, I gotta stop here and deal with what sort of feels like a rather trivial matter to the rest of you, but this is crucial to me. And can you imagine the hope in Jairus' heart when Jesus says, sure, I'll come with you? And can you imagine what his insides must feel like when Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples rebuke Jesus, and they're like, Jesus, that's like a running back at the bottom of a pile saying, who tackled me? There's like eight people touching you right now and you wanna know who touched your garment? Let's get a move on. Time is of the essence here. Let's be effective. Let's be efficient. Let's get this done. And Jesus introduces this horrible delay into the life of Jairus by wanting to stop and find out who touched him. He wants to make personal contact with a woman that we'll talk about more later. And I just want to stop and I just want to ask us, anyone feel like this today? Do you feel like I'm in desperate circumstances here? I'm in a desperate condition here and it feels like Jesus is engaged in this horrible delay. He doesn't understand how irrational this is. He doesn't understand that if we don't get to business now, I'm in big trouble. He doesn't understand I don't need his help tomorrow. I need it right now. Where is his grace? Where is his love? Where is his healing? Where is his redemption? Can we begin to feel what Jairus is feeling right now? And if you look with me at verse 33, verse 33 says two words that capture verse 25 through verse 29. Verse 33 says this, she told him the whole truth or could be translated, she told him the whole story. What is the whole story that she told him? Well, it at least started 12 years ago when she started bleeding, literally a fountain flowing from her. And she must have told him all about all the doctors and the magicians that tried to fix her. And she must have told him about losing her family because Leviticus tells us that when a woman is in her monthly cycle, she's unclean for seven days at the end of it. But a woman who continues to bleed for a prolonged period of time is at that point as unclean as a leper and is not a part of the community. And so she probably told him about all the pain that she went through because the doctors back in this, in this day and age, we have Roman documents, we have Jewish documents that talk about how a doctor or a magician would try and heal a woman like this. It was horrible stuff. And then she must have said, and then I heard about you and I heard that people that just touched you were healed. 
And so I decided to come and find you. And so I snuck up behind you and I was encanting to myself over and over if I just touch his garment, if I just touch his garment, if I just touch his garment. And I touched you and instantaneously I knew inside of me that I was well. Have you ever heard an old woman tell of a prolonged disease that she's been wrestling with for 12 plus years? It does not go by quick. You could go through several birthdays while listening to it. Can you imagine Jairus' innards at this point? This horrible, horrible delay in the middle of incredibly painful circumstances. If you were to ask an ER doctor, how would you describe what's going on in this context right now? Just stop and tell me what you're thinking. The ER doctor would tell you, this is malpractice. Do you know why when you go to the waiting room of the ER, when you're sitting for a long time waiting to see someone, that means the 18-year-old who checked you in thought that your problem was chronic and not acute. But you notice how people come in on a bed with blood and guts everywhere and they just fly right past the waiting room? That's because when you have an acute problem and a problem that needs to be fixed right now, you get to it. And the chronic problem, the one that's been lasting for 12 years, can certainly last a couple more hours. Do you see from our perspective how irrational this is, how ineffective this is, how guilty the great physician is of malpractice? He's asleep. He's nowhere to be found. I need his help right now, not later. If he waits any longer, I'm not going to make it. I need a healing from this disease. I need a spouse to live life with. I need a job so that I can eat. I need my child to stop screaming all night. I need my house to sell in that other city. I need this litigation to end soon, and I have to win or we're done. I need the economy to recover right now. Does anyone feel a little bit like Jairus this morning? Desperate circumstances that Jesus is choosing to leave us in for just a little while longer. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he make this decision? And here's the point of the entire text. Jesus allows and even orchestrates desperate circumstances and delays in our lives so that he can develop our faith. You have two choices. Either Jesus is not in control if you believe that Jesus is not in control, it's yin versus yang. It's good versus bad. It's cynicism and doubt and hopelessness. Maybe not early in your life when you're working your plan and planning your work, but as soon as something happens, you're gonna be at this conundrum of either Jesus is not in control and so I'm gonna give up or Jesus is in control and I'm gonna have to look really closely at what I think about him in this desperate circumstance. So let's look at this. General principle, Jesus allows and even orchestrates desperate circumstances and delays in our lives so that he can develop our faith. Think about this from our story. Think of our two main characters, Jairus and the woman that's been bleeding for 12 years. Both of them come to Jesus expecting something from him. Both of them get more from him than they thought they needed, and both of them had to give him more than they were ready to give. Think of Jairus. I need a fever cure. I need a healing. Instead, Jesus is going to give him a resurrection, but he's going to demand from him the faith that it takes to get the resurrection. Think about, think about the woman. The woman, her delay in our passage, her delay in her desperate reality in our passage is veiled compared 
compared to Jairus. But we're supposed to see, as Jesus teaches Jairus, we're supposed to see that he is saying, look at this woman, look at her desperate circumstances for 12 years. Look at her delay for 12 years. Look at how lonely and isolated and how much of an outsider this woman is and watch me love her and heal her. She comes to Jesus a little bit superstitious, a little bit believing. Now, when I read this and all the commentaries, like I read eight to 10 commentaries, I had a week off, so I read way too much. Now, listen to multiple sermons from multiple pastors that I enjoy from multiple denominations, and all of them brought out this point that this woman is half superstition, half faith. That this idea of coming up behind Jesus, this idea of incantating while she's going, if I could just touch his garment, the Greek indicates to us that she keeps saying it over and over and over. And the fact that she wants to touch his clothes where a magician would say his power resides proves that she is going to Jesus half superstitious, half believing. And really she just wants to go up to the Coke dispenser and get a healing. She wants a something And it is the nature of Jesus to stop this procession in these urgent circumstances to say, I don't give a something, I give a someone. And I'm going to stop and make personal contact with this woman and I'm going to tell her that although her faith is mixed with superstition, it's good enough for me. And I want to deepen and develop her faith right now. That's why Jesus says to her in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He does not want her to sneak back into the crowd thinking she brought something to the equation in her superstition and Jesus brought something to the equation with his power. He wants her to know it was all his power. That as the object of her faith, he is the one that has all the power, all the mercy, all the grace, all the healing. And so he sends her back out with a deepened, developed faith that comes at the end of a 12-year delay in desperate circumstances. Do you see this? (laughs) Excuse me. (coughs) As well. And Jairus. Now here's the irony I want you to see in this passage. When you think of those desperate circumstances that we are in, when we think of those delays that we're experiencing right now, do you notice how others are going to prosper when we are in pain? It's not just enough that Jesus orchestrates and allows suffering to come into our life, but that he puts us in community with other people who are prospering while we're in pain. Do you see this from Jairus? Not only is Jesus lollygagging, he's not taking a nap. He's not taking the wrong, the wrong road. He's not going down. Yesterday I drove my family uh, over two days ago. They wanted to throw a birthday party for me in Lakeland. My mother-in-law did. I drove my family and it's, I've only been gone for a couple years. I took the wrong exit um, to, to get us there. And uh, so our horrible delay was because I just forgot which road to turn on. That's not what's going on here with Jesus. Listen, when you can't conceive a child God is going to put you in a relationship with lots of fertile wombs. When you want a boyfriend and you've wanted one for a long time, your roommate's gonna meet someone online and get married within six months. When you need a job, people around you are going to get raises in a recession. This is just how Jesus works. Do you see this in Jairus' life? This is what 
the point of all of this is. When I look back at my life, and when I was listening to these two sermons, one about an older Baptist minister and an older Presbyterian minister, both of them said, now listen, this is gonna be really hard for us to go through. This text and this idea and this biblical truth that we are gonna find over and over and over, that desperation and delay are brought by God to develop and to deepen and to purify your faith. This is gonna be hard. And it caused me to think back on those times where I've been wounded, where I've been betrayed, where I've been sick, where I've gone through things that I'd never wanna go through again. And when I look at those situations in my life now, I see the loving hand of Jesus in every one of them. And I see him at work in me. You know what he's knocking out of my life through desperate circumstances and long delays? For me, it's the idol of control. When I'm planning my work and working my plan, it's easy for me to think I'm in control of everything, but when everything goes haywire, I have to quickly repent and realize I never had control in the first place. It also knocks out of me self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is this idea that I've been working really hard here and I've been obeying and I've been, my kids have been obeying and they go to sleep on time and I've been doing all this stuff right and my life is falling apart and Jesus says, you know what? You never earn anything from me. I give you everything by grace. And so sometimes I'm gonna take you through valleys to expose that you think the good things in your life come from you and not me. And it exposes my self-centeredness. Why do I think I need the job? Why do I think I'm the one that should get to have a mate? Why do I think I'm the one that should get to have obedient kids? Why do I think I'm the one that should advance? And so what I would say to each of us is to realize that the Bible says over and over and over again that God sends us through trials, desperation and delay. He sends us through trials because he has seen in us faith and he wants to give us more faith. Do you see this in Jairus? He doesn't come to Jesus lacking faith. He says, come and lay your hands on her so that she will be made well and live. Jairus believes. And as soon as Jesus sees that Jairus believes, he says, okay, we're gonna up the ante here. Do you want to know why maybe you're not going through desperate circumstances and delay? Could be that we don't really believe very much. You might be thinking as a young believer, I think this all the time. I cannot wait to get to the point where I have enough faith and enough hope and enough repentance and enough love that my life just goes smoothly. And things will come my way, but they won't cause me anxiety. They won't cause me to lose sleep. I will just be peaceful in them. Ask any mature believer, anyone who you perceive to be mature, tell me about the last time that Jesus upped the ante on your faith and demanded that you believe him more today than you had to yesterday. And I am telling you, Jesus loves to see faith in us. And when he does, he ups the ante every time. Romans 5, this week, we read it on Friday in CBR. This is why Paul can say, that he rejoices in his sufferings because that sufferings produce endurance and endurance produces character. That Jesus right now is not producing character in us so that we can go to heaven. He's producing in us character because he's purchased our life in heaven. And this is the most loving thing he can do. And the scriptures teach us very clearly he produces character in his children, the ones that he loves, the ones he could not love anymore, the ones who could not please him at all, the ones who have new mercy from him every morning. He produces character in us through suffering because we have to endure 
and we have to smash idols and we have to smash false hopes and we have to smash false ideas and we have to cling only to Jesus and who he is. And then he meets us in that need and in that brokenness and in that poverty. And we believe more. And when we believe more, we have more joy. So Paul can say literally, I want to rejoice in hard times because of what Jesus does in my life. James 1 to 2, same idea. This is the very first book written in the New Testament by Jesus' half-brother. Count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. We called it endurance in Romans. Now we're calling it steadfastness in James. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so we come to the climax, we come to the hinge, we come to the center of this Markan sandwich, this sandwich of two stories with Jairus on the outsides and the woman that's been bleeding for 12 years in the middle. We come to the middle and we pick up in verse 34. And Jesus said to this woman, after listening to her whole story, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now listen, look at verse 35. While he was still speaking. So Mark wants us to know that these two phrases are being said at the same time. Jesus is saying, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease or be made whole. And at the same time, someone comes and says in the other ear of Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? And then it says, Jesus overhearing, it's a word that could mean ignore or overhear. So he ignores what they said. He overhears what they said. He discounts what they have said. And he says to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Right now in the middle of desperate circumstances of unconscionable delay, where we believe Jesus is guilty of malpractice in our life, we have stories and people and movies and culture and thinkers that are saying, you're dead. You're done. Let's be cynical. Let's lose hope. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. And in the other ear, we have the gospel community telling us about the Bible, telling us about song, telling us through prayer, telling us through sacrament, your faith has made you well. (laughs) You're saved. Go in peace. And this is the question, this is the tension that Mark is setting up for us. Which one will we listen to? Will we believe what we can only see in our circumstances or will we believe what we cannot see in Jesus and his promises and his character, and how well he's treated us in the past. And I want to move into point number three, little daughters, and I want to cause each of us to see more in Jesus, more of his promises, more of his beauty, more of his love, more of his forgiveness, more of his grace, so that when we have this demon on one shoulder talking and this angel on the other shoulder talking, that we listen and bend our ear and our soul to the gospel, that we are loved and that we're whole, and our faith has saved us. Do you see Jesus' two daughters? Do you see how important the word daughter is in this text? Verse 23, my little daughter is at the point of death. Then Jesus picks up later in verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Verse 35, at the exact same time that Jesus is saying daughter, Jairus' friends are saying your daughter is dead. And then Jesus is gonna talk to Jairus' little daughter and call her little girl. 
And we'll unpack that in a moment. Listen, if you want to rally your heart around the gospel, if you want to believe the good news of Jesus, you have got to see in this passage that Jesus is a savior of outsiders and enemies. Because when we get into these horrible circumstances, we will tend to turn on ourselves and say, this is because of your addiction. This is because of the way you treat your parents. This is the way, this is happening to you because of how you treat your wife. This is happening to you because you cheated on your taxes. This is happening to you because you've just made a mess of the life that God's given you. And the hard and honest truth about me and you is that all of those things are true about us, but that is not the reason that believers go through pain. It is, we did cheat. I did cheat all the way through high school and college. I have treated my wife horribly. I have manipulated my kids. I yell at them. I do. I'm tempted to cheat on my taxes every year and I have to hire an accountant so I don't. And so what I need to see in this passage is that Jesus has two daughters, two that he calls his own, two that he cares about to the extent that Jairus cares about his little daughter and even more. I need to see that one's an outsider and that one's an enemy because I'm an outsider and I'm an enemy, except in the gospel, I'm brought near in Jesus. Do you see this? Do you see who the outsider is? This happens over and over and over in the gospel of Mark and in the Bible and in all four gospels. We have these pairings. You'll have an older son and a younger son. You'll have a a tax collector and a Pharisee. You'll have a prostitute and, 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 and a Pharisee. You'll have all of these good people put up against bad people. You'll have all of these insiders put up against outsiders. You'll have all these achievers put up against failures. And Jesus always goes towards the outsider and the failure. He always does. He always goes to the one that has screwed up the most and been screwed with the most every time. Look at this. She has no name. Do you see that? She has no name in the entire text. We know that he is Jairus by name. She has no position He is the top position. Her ID, her identification, who she says she is, is her shame. And his identification is his record. She is utterly and desperately poor and he is most certainly rich. She is a woman. He is a man. In this culture, it is outlandish and outrageous that Jesus stops to listen to a woman. She's a rule breaker. He's a rule keeper. She hasn't attended the synagogue in 12 years because she's unclean. He is the ruler of the synagogue. She is the bottom of the food chain and he is the top of the food chain. And who is Jesus attracted to? He's attracted to the woman. And not only is he attracted to her, he says, you're my little daughter. What is it in Jairus that he's attracted to? Not his record, not his wealth, not his achievements, not his goodness. He's attracted to his brokenness. Why does Jesus go with Jairus? Because he's broken. Jesus loves to love outsiders. And not only that, Jesus loves to love enemies. The reason that the text tells us over and over that Jairus is his name at the beginning and then four mentions that he's the ruler of the synagogue is because we have already found out in the book of Mark that every time the word synagogue comes up, every time, all 16 times, except for one, 
There's bad things going down. There's a plot against Jesus's life. There are unclean spirits there. There's radical unbelief there. The synagogue is portrayed by Mark as the central services of the enemy of Jesus in Rome and in the land of the Jews. And that's why Mark keeps telling us over and over that he's going to the ruler of the synagogue's house. And not only is he gonna go there, he's gonna go there and tell Jairus, your little daughter is more precious to me than she is to you because I love my enemies. And so we pick up. We pick up in verse 35, 36, 37. And he's following him again and he only lets Peter, James, and John go with him. And he gets there and there's a loud commotion. Surely uh, Jairus, being a wealthy man, would have multiple paid staff there welling and lamenting and leading the family in this funeral. We know even in some cultures now in the ancient Near East, that right, or the, the area that is, was the ancient Near East, we know that even now, even a poor person ex- is expected to have two flute players and one lamenter to keep the rally going. So you can imagine these throngs of professional mourners hanging outside Jairus' house. Oh, we sure hope she doesn't die. It would be a crying shame if that little girl dies. I hope she doesn't die. All the while knowing that if she dies, they're gonna get paid. There are vultures around. You see this? And she dies and they get to come in and it is their job to keep the family wailing and lamenting and screaming and singing songs of dirge. And Jesus comes up on the commotion and he says this horrendous thing. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they ridicule him. They ridicule him first because they know she's dead. But second, because they want their money. And Jesus says, no, she's just sleeping. And he kicks everyone out of the house. Takes just Peter, James, and John, and the mom and the dad. And he says, let's go in and see her. Why would Jesus say something so crazy as she's just dead? And Luke, when Luke captures this story, it indicates very clearly that Luke knows that the girl is dead. Luke is, in fact, the one who made a living by being a physician. He knows that she's dead. It says, in fact, that after Jesus heals her, her spirit comes back to her, and it uses the word dead in Luke. This little girl is dead. Why would Jesus say she's only sleeping? Keep going with me (laughs) into verse 41. He takes her by the hand, and he says to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Talitha kumi is, uh, the book of Mark is written in, uh, in the Greek language. In fact, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the entire New Testament is written in the, in the Greek language. Talith kumi um, is an Aramaic phrase. It's, it's the phrase that was most familiar to Jesus. It's, it's the language that he grew up talking in his home. It's his mother tongue. It's what's near and dear to his heart. And so when he takes this little girl by the hand, although he most definitely also spoke at least Greek and probably other languages, he uses his mother tongue and he says, Talitha kumi. And when Mark takes it and he translates it, it says literally, which translates? Translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. He goes back to the Greek language and he uses this phrase, little girl. And the reason for that is this, that, that the best translation that I could find for Talitha in Aramaic might be little lady, but is most likely honey. It's the word a mother uses for her daughter. And the word for kumi does not mean resurrection. It means get up. And so Jesus says, she's just asleep. Watch this, honey. 
It's time to wake up. Do you see this incredible power in Jesus? He faces a hurricane in chapter four. He's like, shut up, sit down and be quiet. And it does. He faces an army of demons next, the beginning of chapter five. It says, go in those pigs and go run yourself into the abyss. You're done. And now a greater power than the hurricane, an evil force of nature, and a greater power than demons is death itself. And Jesus walks up to this little dead girl and says, honey, get up. In the same way her mom would say at the break of day, honey, it's time to wake up. I hope you had a good night's sleep. And this is what Jesus is teaching us. That he will take his enemy by the hand when they die and he will lift them up out of death as easily and simply as a mom waking up her 12-year-old daughter. How can he do that? It's not just power, it's incredible love. Do you see this? Do you see this? It says, when the woman touched him, power went out from him. For her to be strong, he had to be weak. For her to become clean, he becomes ceremonially unclean. For her to become whole, he has to be broken on the cross. That's why we read 1 Thessalonians 5 as our words of assurance. Did you catch that? Paul says, I don't care if you're awake or asleep, talking about being alive or being dead. Sleep is a word the Bible uses multiple times to talk about death. He says, I don't care if you're alive or dead, awake or asleep. You are alive in Christ because he went to sleep on the cross for you. And that is how he can love outsiders and enemies. We'll explore it more in the sacrament of communion. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you take our death I thank you that you take our isolation. I thank you that you take our poverty. I thank you that you take our betrayal. I thank you that you take our sickness. I thank you that you take our weakness. You make us strong and healthy and hopeful and alive. Even now as we look forward to the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, I thank you for your power. I thank you for your love. I pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe and wills to obey. In your name we pray. Amen.